Hello, glory of Christ. It's good to be with you again this morning, even in this less than ideal way. I pray that you are blessed in the Lord in these times. And if you are blessed, I want to encourage you to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ in this church and even in our city and around the nation and indeed around the world. Not everybody who's in Christ is doing well in these days, and so we need to pray for one another, and we need to to reach out with the love of Christ for one another. So if by God's grace you are strong right now, then, then do whatever you can to lift up those who are weak. And today, if you're not doing so well, I pray for you. I pray God's blessings upon you. And I want to encourage you to turn your eyes onto the Lord. I want to encourage you to turn off the television, to turn off your computer, to put away your phone, Stop listening to all the feeds and getting caught up in all the hysteria of the day. Remove other distractions and just turn to the Lord. Open up his word. Read his word. Listen to his word. Listen to worship music. Sing songs to the Lord. Do whatever you have to do to focus your attention on the Lord and then draw strength from him. Draw faith from him. Draw hope from him. Look to the Lord. He is your shelter. He is your hope. And then also, I want to encourage you to call on your brothers and sisters in Christ because we're not alone in this. If you're weak, somebody else is strong, not in comparison to you, but for you. We're, we're weak and we're strong together, all of us, beloved. We're in this together. So whether you're weak or strong right now, I pray that through this crazy season that God will greatly bless his people. And I look forward to the testimonies that we will hear and tell on the other side of this crisis. We're going to get through this crisis, beloved. But on the other side of this crisis, and even in the midst of it, Jesus is Lord, and his church is the salt and light of the world. So be blessed. With that, if you will, take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. I want to read with you verses 12 through 17, which is the letter to the church in Pergamum. Jesus, speaking to John, commanded him to write these words. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, and may we be blessed as we hear and heed it today. Let's pray for our time in the word. Our Father, we thank you so much for speaking to this ancient church, and we thank you so much for your living speech to them that will speak to us today. We thank you that you are the one who has the sharp two-edged sword and that you are not afraid to wield it on behalf of your people. Sometimes that means that you come against our enemies with your words. Sometimes that means that you expose our heart and our habits with your words. 
But whatever you aim to do today, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would do it. We invite you to come and do it because our God is a consuming fire who loves us and who is out to purify us so that our faith will be pure, so that our love will be perfected, and so that our joy will be as high as heaven in the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in these words, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Lord, we know that we cannot purify ourselves for you, but we also know that you can purify us for yourself. So please come now. Use your word and by your spirit, do just that. For how you will work in us and for what you will do, we give you our thanks and praise in your most high and holy name. Amen. In seasons of victory and of defeat, in seasons of sickness and of health, in seasons of relative freedom and partial confinement, the Church of Jesus Christ has always faced opposition within and without. And while we could describe our internal opposition in any number of ways, I don't think we would be very far off the mark to just summarize all of them with two words, idolatry and immorality. Or perhaps we could say false worship and fleshly indulgence of, of a number of kinds. And while we could describe our external opponents in any number of ways, I think we would do well to hear well and to believe, to really take to heart the words of the Apostle Paul when he said in Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Human beings are never ultimately our enemies. But we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, as the forces of this world array against the church in a variety of ways and at a variety of, of levels of intensity, we would be wise to correctly identify our enemies. We would be wise to employ biblical measures to overcome our actual enemies. And we would be wise to keep preaching the gospel to those on this earth who are essentially just the instruments of our enemies. The human beings who come to us are simply instruments in the hands of the devil. And so again, when we think about our external opposition, we would be wise to correctly identify our enemies and to seek to overcome them on biblical terms. Through the centuries, as the church has faced its internal and external opponents in every season of life, in good times and in bad times, it has always responded with a mixture of faith-filled perseverance and a fleshly compromise. And since Jesus speaks into both of these responses in his letter to the church in Pergamum, beloved, we would be wise to hear and to heed his counsel to the church in verse 17. He repeats this to every single church and in fact to all the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So before we dive deep into the details of the letter to the church in Pergamum, I want to encourage you to resolve right now that you will surrender your heart to the Lord and allow him to come and speak into your life, that you will willingly allow him to take his sword and pierce your heart and expose who you truly are, that you will allow him to do his work in you, that he might purify you and empower you for his purposes in heaven and on earth. I know that that can be a little scary. But it's good to open ourselves up to the Lord. He who has an ear, let him resolve to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus begins with the words, And to the church, 
to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The city of Pergamum was located about 18 miles east of the Aegean Sea along a river valley. It was about 35 miles to the south, uh, excuse me, um, to the north of Smyrna and about 100 miles to the north of Ephesus. Its name means citadel or fortress, and that's a well-chosen name because the city was actually built on a high and steep and ascending slope, way up at about a thousand feet above the river bed. Not long after it was conquered by Alexander the Great in the 4th century BC, it rose in prominence as a major military and political center. It became a, a fortress, which again makes so much sense just because of its location high atop that hill. As time went on, though, Smyrna eventually eclipsed this city in its military and political stature, but Pergamum rose to become a, a most prominent religious center in that part of the world. So when you think of Smyrna, think cultural and political power. When you think Pergamum, think religious power. Of course, both cities were a mixture of, of all of that, but we're talking about their, their, their primary functions in the kingdom in that part of the world. Smyrna is cultural and political power, Pergamum is religious power. In addition to several temples that were built there to the worship of the Roman emperors, Pergamum also had a number of temples dedicated to various Greek gods, dedicated to various Egyptian gods, and dedicated to even other gods. There were lots of them there, over 10 major ones and then many minor ones. Of the many false gods that were worshipped there, Four of these gods were considered to be patron deity, and therefore they appeared on the city's coinage. So these were the gods that the city boasted. They are our gods. They are our patron deities. They are our hope. They are our protectors. And, and here were their names. They considered the false gods of Athena, Zeus, Dionysius, and Aclepius, I think you would say, to be their patron deities. And they looked to them, again, for hope and for protection and for power. Because the city was home to so many temples, and because the emperors of Rome kept a throne there and sometimes held court there, the city attracted a large number of pilgrims throughout the year who would make that challenging climb up the mountain simply to make offerings to their gods and to their emperors. It was, in other words, a hub of idolatry. We should not be surprised then that the early church thought of it just that way that it was a, a center of idolatry, perhaps the way we would think of a Las Vegas or something like that. And we should not be surprised, although I think on first reading we probably are surprised, but now having heard these things, we should not be surprised to hear Jesus identify the city as the location of Satan's throne and the place in which he dwells. Now, that doesn't mean that Pergamum was the devil's exclusive place of ruling authority, and it does not mean that Pergamum was the exclusive place in which he lived. Rather, Jesus was simply saying that Pergamum was an, a, a very important base of operations in the world, not only for the Roman Empire, but for Satan himself. This was a major center for his operations in the world. And it means that behind the mighty Roman Empire was an even greater power and even greater forces that were influencing them and even controlling them as they were lashing out at the people of God throughout the world from important cities like Pergamum. Now, like the church in Smyrna, the church of Pergamum probably began under the ministry of the Apostle Paul 
and of some of his companions as they preached the gospel throughout all of Asia. Paul was living in Ephesus at that time. He spent two or three years there. And while he was there, we learn in Acts 19 that they went all throughout that whole region of the world preaching the gospel at, at great risk to their lives. Probably that's how the church of Pergamum started. We don't know for sure, but that's what's most likely. What we do know is that like the church in Smyrna, as the church of Pergamum grew in size and stature, it also experienced fierce seasons of opposition from both Jewish and Roman authorities who, for different reasons, abhorred the church's exclusive focus on Jesus Christ. They just found the insistence that Jesus is the only God and the only Savior of the world to be absolutely repugnant and irresponsible and unacceptable, and so in various ways they sought to slow down or even destroy the church. In fact, at one point, this opposition was so fierce that a man named Antipas was actually killed from among the church. Most likely, they killed him because he refused to participate in the worship of false gods and, and, and of emperors there in the city of Pergamum. As I've told you before, the Roman Empire had no problem with anybody worshiping Jesus. What they had a problem with is people not acknowledging that there were other gods that, that ought also to be worshiped. And what they had a problem with is anybody who would not join in the worship of the emperors and, and uh, confess their allegiance to the emperors. They were supposed to say, Caesar is Lord. But the Christians insisted on saying instead, Jesus is Lord, and they simply would not bow and say, Caesar is Lord. And for this, most likely, Antipas himself was killed. Now, we don't know anything about his actual identity or about the history of his life. And even if we did, we probably here in Elk River would find it a little bit hard to relate to him because he lived such a long time ago in, in such a distant place, and we, we might find it hard to connect with him. But beloved, I want you to think about the fact that this is your brother in Christ. We know very little about him, but what we know is he's our brother in Christ. And what we know is that he was passionate about the gospel. What we know is that he was willing to literally lay down his earthly life that others might know the hope that is found in Jesus. He wasn't killed just because of his own faith. He was killed because he was preaching the gospel to unbelievers. This is our brother in Christ, Antipas. This is the experience, the reality that was the church of Pergamum. Now, in addition to these kinds of external threats, the church there was also suffering from the theological and cultural compromise of some people within the church. It wasn't everybody, but there were prominent people within the church who were compromising. These people were engaging in and even promoting a mixture of Roman and Christian worship practices that were appealing to some people that were, but that were most abhorrent to Jesus. They were absolutely displeasing to Jesus. Either because they did not fully understand the gospel and they had yet to come out of the world, or because they were afraid of what would happen to them if they declared absolute allegiance to Jesus and to his church. These Christian people inside the church were deceived and they were deceiving others. They were leading them astray into idolatry and immorality, and so we should not be surprised to see Jesus address himself to the church in verse 12 as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now you'll remember that image of a sharp two-edged sword, I'm sure, from the vision that John saw of Jesus in chapter 1. There as John beheld the revealed glory of Christ, he noticed that there was a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, which is the word of God. 
And as I mentioned when we were meditating on that vision, when we were way back when we were at the Hanky Center, I think that that sword comes out of his mouth rather than being pictured in his hand because the word of God is something that emerges from the being of Jesus and it's not just something that he holds in his possession. The word of God is an expression of the glory and the will of the living God and it's not just a tool or a weapon that's in his hand. It's not just something that he owns. It's an expression of his being. This is the nature of the word of God. It is hardly distinguishable from God himself. And since this is the nature of the sharp two-edged sword, then we can conclude that the words of Jesus are infinitely pure. They are absolutely authoritative and they are utterly inescapable. The words of Jesus are immediately incisive, they are powerfully penetrating, and they are thoroughly revealing. This reminds me again of Romans, uh, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, where the author says this about the word of God. For the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and even the intentions of the heart. And no creature in heaven or on earth is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And what makes us naked and exposed is, the, is his words. It is his pronouncement of what he sees and what he thinks about what he sees. Beloved, Jesus identifies himself in this way to the church of Pergamum as the one who holds this sharp two-edged sword, or excuse me, from whom this sharp two-edged sword emerges because of the things that he has to say to them and the things that were happening inside of that church. They needed to encounter Jesus in this way. In fact, I think we can say they needed to be confronted by Jesus in this way. So as we march through the rest of the letter now, please keep in mind, keep close to your minds, the image of this sharp two-edged sword. It's going to become very important. As is the case with all the letters of Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus begins his statement to the church in Pergamum with those two penetrating words, I know. And while the knowledge of Jesus about his people is absolute and goes in every single conceivable direction, he focuses their attention specifically on their city and on their experience in that city. And I think he does this because he wants them to understand that he knows their context very well. He knows that city very profoundly. He He knows their history very well. He knows it very profoundly. And he knows their responses to their various opponents in that city very well. In fact, he knows their responses profoundly, inside and outside, privately and collectively. Indeed, Jesus was more familiar with Pergamum than any ruler, priest, citizen, or historian has ever been. And so, again, from his perspective, he just says it like it is. He says, you you can think of Pergamum what you will, but here's what I see. It is Satan's throne. It is the place where Satan dwells. It is the home of idolatry. It is the home of emperor worship. It is the home of indulgence. It is the home of immorality. Jesus knew very well that that city was actually a hostile context for his people, and yet because he loved the people of Pergamum and desired for them to be saved, he sent his people into that city to preach the gospel, beloved, 
This is the extent of his love for those who are greatly rebelling against him. Think about that. In the, in the home where people are worshiping other gods, Jesus sends his own prophets to proclaim to them the true God because he loves them. This is the measure of his grace, of his mercy, of his kindness, of his patience with people. And while you might think that it's cruel for Jesus to send Christians into an environment like that, it's not at all. It is a great privilege, not just to suffer for Christ, but to suffer with Christ and by the power of Christ. Those who are called to suffer in this way to preach the gospel of Jesus are also given the grace to do so. And the heart of that grace is that they become one with their master. They become one with their savior in his willingness to lay down his very life that others might have eternal life. Beloved, it's a great privilege that Jesus decided to plant a church right in the heart of idolatry, right in the midst of the hub of the worship of false gods and of emperors. It's it's an amazing display of his grace. As the church there grew, as I said, they experienced fierce opposition, even including the death of one of their beloved friends and brothers, Antipas. And yet even in the light of his death and in, in the sure threat that came upon the rest of the church at that time, Jesus said that they did not shrink back from him. They did not shrink back from his faith, but rather they were clinging to him. The ESV says that they were holding fast to his name, but that word holding fast just means to cling to something tightly and and to not let go. It means to cling to something and, and do your best to keep it in control if you can. And here what the people of God were doing was clinging to the name of Jesus. They were not willing to let it go. And also Jesus said that they were not denying his faith, which I take to mean they were not denying his truth. They were not denying the faith. They were not denying the gospel. You see, even though Antipas was killed and even though Christians were being grilled, even though Christians were being questioned and threatened with imprisonment and death and who who knows what else, they would not stop preaching the name of Jesus. Their faith was not merely a private thing and, and it was not for private faith that they were being killed. The reason they were hated and persecuted and killed was because they were proclaiming Jesus to those who were persecuting them. And in the faith, uh, in, in, the, in the face of, of possible death, they continued to do that. They continued to cling to his name. They continued to proclaim the faith. And Jesus was commending them for it, beloved. Jesus was encouraging them to continue in that way. In response to the fierce external opposition this church was facing, They were pressing on with faith-filled perseverance, as so many have done throughout the centuries. They were enduring the fires of the enemy of their souls by the power of Jesus and for the the salvation of the very people who were persecuting them. They were probably founded by the Apostle Paul, as I told you. They only lived 100 miles to the north of Ephesus. They had surely heard the truth that we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. They knew this truth, and they knew it well. They had surely correctly identified their enemies as spiritual forces and not as the human beings who were presently coming against them. And so they correctly identified their enemy. They, they were um, in, enacting biblical means to overcome those enemies, and they kept on preaching the gospel to the human beings who were persecuting them. This is what the love of Christ looks like, beloved, when it really overtakes our lives. How are you doing with your love for the lost? 
How are you doing with your willingness to speak about Jesus no matter the cost or the consequence? You know, I'm not asking you to do anything in your flesh. I'm not asking you to redouble your efforts to do anything for Jesus. Because the way this truly happens, the way this kind of life-risking boldness happens is as we simply go to Christ and look to him and learn from him and draw on him and love him and understand him and gain fresh power and faith from him to go into the world and do anything he commands us to do at any cost. The power comes from him, not from us. So with that in mind, how are you doing? How are you doing? Are you stoking the fires of your faith and therefore the fires of your love for unbelievers? Well, our sister church here in Pergamum was doing just that. Some of them were filled with faith-filled perseverance and Jesus was commending them for it. Be that as it may, even though they knew who their correct enemy was and even though they were not working in opposition, um, at least not ultimately to those who were persecuting them, Jesus told them that one day he would come against the powers of Pergamum with the sword of his mouth so that no evil person or spirit in that place would be able to escape his judgment. Indeed, the one who speaks with infinite purity, with absolute authority, and with inescapable force was for them and not against them, some of which they understood, some of which they did not understand. But because he was for them and not against them, ultimately they had nothing to fear. And this is why we can risk our lives for the sake of Christ, because ultimately we have nothing to fear. The God who is life will give us life, come what may on this earth. Now, as inspiring as is the faith of some in the church of Pergamum, others in that church responded to their internal and external opponents by compromising their faith and by indulging their flesh. And for this reason, Jesus said in verse 14 to them, he said, but I have a few things against you. Now, as I said when we were looking at the letter to the Ephesians, this doesn't mean that Jesus was holding a grudge against the church. He's not a a grudge-holding kind of a person. But it does mean that he had searched and had tried them by his love. He had exposed them through his piercing eyes and seen everything that was there to be seen. And he had come to certain conclusions about them, and he had found them lacking in some serious and specific ways. First of all, Jesus told the church that some among them were holding to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Now that might seem a little vague and confusing to you, but it just refers to an Old Testament story that as it turns out had particular relevance to that church and probably has relevance to this particular church here, glory of Christ but certainly has relevance to the church in the United States at large. That story is found in Numbers chapters uh, 22, 23, and 24. It bleeds a little bit into chapter 25, but the heart of it is in 22 to 24. And there we learn that the people of Israel, as they were preparing to enter into the promised land, had settled in the plains of Moab, which were located just to the east of the promised land. They were there waiting on the Lord. They were waiting on his timing to go in and take what God had already given to them so long ago. God had blessed them and God had been blessing them in recent days. And the time for them to come out of their season of discipline and into the promises of God had drawn ever so near. As they encamped there in that place and were waiting on the Lord, the king of Moab, a guy named Balak, began to fear what would happen to his people. He had heard of what God had done for them in Egypt. He knew well what had 
God had just done for them to the peoples around them. They had just won some military victories with some very powerful kings in that very area. And Balak knew that he had no hope of overcoming these people. There was no way that he was going to militarily or otherwise overcome them. There was no way. And so he decided to enlist the services of a pagan prophet named Balaam, who he hoped would come and curse the people and weaken them so that they could be overcome. Balaam lived in a city called Pethor, which was uh, several hundred miles to the north and east of Israel, uh, about halfway to Babylon, right on the banks of the Euphrates River. He had developed a reputation for helping kings in their military campaigns. Sometimes he would curse people, sometimes he would offer advice, but one way or the other he had had enough success that he had become well known. And so from Balak's point of view, the king of Moab, he figured that his best bet was to uh, enlist the services of this pagan prophet to help him weaken and then overcome the people. At first, Balaam refused the offer when the delegation arrived, but through some maneuverings, they finally persuaded him to come. And on some particular day, he found himself there in the land of Moab. On three separate occasions, Balak set up opportunities for him to curse the people of God. But every time he went to curse them, God put a blessing in his mouth so that he publicly and powerfully blessed them. In fact, on the third time, he said things that clearly point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I really encourage you to go back to Numbers 22, 23, 24 and read the oracles because it's amazing the depth uh, of what God pronounced over the people of Israel and how it points directly to Jesus Christ. It's really amazing. Balak wanted to curse him. And God says, no, 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 I'm going to put an amazing, in fact, an eternal blessing upon them that will be not only for their good, but for the good of all the nations. Oh, isn't it amazing to serve a God like this? Beloved, don't fear COVID-19. I know there's lots of things for us to fear in these weird times. Don't fear it. God is in total control. God will make all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. He's done this for a very long time. He's doing this right now, and he will do this until we enter into the age to come. So be encouraged. Now, while Balaam had no choice but to bless the people of Israel in these sort of public ceremonies, he privately counseled Balak in a different way. It's sort of like he said, listen, there's nothing I can do about this public stuff. By the way, I forgot to say that when Balaam was blessing the people of Israel, Balak got very upset. Balak was incensed at him. He was like, I paid you handsomely to come and curse these people, and you're doing just the opposite of that. So what's up with that, right? Well, Balaam said, there's nothing I can do about it. But then in private, maybe in his personal quarters, maybe as they're walking along the road, he said, listen, there's nothing I can do about that, but I want to give you my counsel as to how you can trip these people up. I want to tell you, if I was in your shoes, what I would do to weaken them and to try to overcome them. And he said, just simply invite them to something. And Balak sort of scratches his head and said, invite them to something. Yes, invite them to something. Invite the Israelites to join you in your sacrificial feasts to your false gods. Invite them to join you in eating food sacrificed to idols. Invite them to join you in the sexual immorality that went along with those feasts and that continued after the feasts and had nothing now to do with religion, just had to do with indulgence. Invite them. Just invite them. We're having a party. Why don't you come over? And who wants to say no to an invitation like that, right? Who wants to say no to coming over and watching a game and enjoying in a feast and indulging in the flesh? At least it's a trap that, you know, we're attracted by certain things and then drawn into other things. 
Well, that's exactly what the king of Moab did. And the Moabites began to invite the Israelites. Hey, why don't you just come along and, uh, and just enjoy this feast with us. We're just going to have a good time, make some sacrifices, eat some food, you know, indulge our flesh. Why don't you come along? Sadly, many of the people of Israel did exactly that. They accepted the invitation. They attended the feast. They engaged in idolatry and immorality. And in doing that, they invited upon themselves the wrath of the Lord. The Lord, in response to their rebellion, sent a plague upon the people that took eventually 24,000 lives. Think about that. That is just about the size of the city of Elk River. Imagine, in a very short period of time, the entire city of Elk River dying. And not just you know 24,000 lives scattered around the country or something like that, but all right pretty much in the same localized area. At that time, there were about 3 million people in Israel, but they were all living right there together. And in their very midst, 24,000 people died because of the curse brought on by their rebellion. Now, in his grace, the Lord stayed his hand and kept this plague from bringing further harm upon his people, but much damage had already been done. You see, the people of Israel should have been focused on the Lord. That's what they should have been doing, utterly focused on him. They had just been through 40 years of discipline. They should have been utterly focused on him. They should have been utterly focused on his purposes and promises and plans for their lives. They should have been utterly focused on the fact that they were just about to now come in and inherit this promised land that they had been waiting for so long to take possession of. But instead of being focused on the Lord and on the things of the Lord, they allowed themselves to be distracted by their own desires. Do you see? You can't really blame Moab here. Moab is just drawing on the desires of the heart. It's the internal enemies that are really being taken advantage of by the external enemies here. The people allowed themselves to be led into false worship and fleshly indulgence. And while their rebellion did not destroy the Lord's purposes for them, it was an affront to his glory and grace. It was an unnecessary compromise of faith, and it caused many problems. And here's one reason why. Beloved, Compromise always paves the way to further compromise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Compromise always leads the way to further compromise. It always damages things, not only for a moment, but over time. And I pray with all my heart that we'll have ears to hear what Jesus is saying to these precious people. Now, When the Lord said that some people in the church of Pergamum were holding to the teachings of Balaam, this almost certainly does not mean that they were consciously drawing on his teachings and promoting the specific things that Balaam had to say. I don't think it's it's a specific metaphor like that. I think Jesus is simply saying that some of these people had bought into the lie of syncretism. They had bought into the lie of mixing false religion with true religion. They had bought into the lie of mixing false worship with true worship. They had come to embrace the idea that it was really no big deal to join the Greeks and the Romans in at least certain aspects of the worship of their gods and probably not of their emperors, but at least of their gods and also to claim to worship the one true God. They were probably saying that in Christ they were free to do this. They were probably believing that kind of a lie. Some people in this precious blood-bought church had fallen into an ancient trap, beloved, that was most likely set for them by the powers of Pergamum. So what I'm saying is that this trap didn't just happen to be there, okay? 
Satan was the one who was ultimately inspiring Balak and Balaam to do what they did. Satan was the one who was inspiring the powers of Pergamum to not tolerate the church, but to come against them fiercely and craftily, right? Uh, On the fierce side, they're trying to persecute them and put some of them to death and therefore stop the gospel from going forward. But on the crafty side, instead of that sort of frontal assault, they're just like, hey, why don't you come over to a party? Yeah, we're just going to eat some things today, you know, talk about a few things. And the next thing they, you know, they, they get drawn into conversation, they get drawn into false thoughts, they get fa- drawn into false ideas, they get drawn into false practices, they, they end up worshiping the gods of other peoples. Now, I'm aware that some of the people in that church, in fact, most of the people in that church actually came to that city, came from that city, and so they were originally called out from the false worship of false gods and into the true worship of the true God, and part of what they were struggling with is just coming fully out of the world. I really do think that some of these folks just did not understand the gospel. I don't think all of them were trying, you know, deliberately to compromise the faith, and I do think that some of them were afraid of what would happen to them if they expressed ultimate, total allegiance to Jesus. And so they, they were compromising because of their fear. I do believe all of that. But at the end of the day, the truth of the matter is that they were falling into an ancient trap where the powers of this world, influenced by Satan himself, were trying to lure the people of God away. Just like the sons of Israel before them, The church was supposed to be fully focused on the Lord and marching toward his purposes, and and instead they're letting themselves be drawn. And it wasn't only this group, but you'll see there in verse 15, Jesus says to them, likewise, there's some of you also who are following the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now we have no idea who the Nicolaitans were. We don't really know any of the details of their teaching, but at the end of the day, that actually doesn't matter very much because we know what their teaching produced. Their teaching produced people who were likewise engaging in false worship and immorality. They were engaging in, uh, in sexual immorality. They were engaging in the kinds of worship feasts that would cause them to eat food sacrificed to idols and, other word, and otherwise in some way, shape, or form give glory to false gods. The, the details of, of different groups in the city of Pergamum were different but the end of it was exactly the same. It was just indulging in idolatry and immorality, and the church was being drawn into this. They were supposed to be fully focused on the Lord. They were supposed to be fully focused on the purposes of the Lord for their lives. They had been called out of the world, and now they're being sucked back into the world. They were on the the edge of the promised land, if you will, coming fully into the promises of God. And while they were still there on the earth in the hub of idolatry, their job was to faithfully preach the gospel with their lips and also with their lives so that others might be saved, so that others might join in the, the great throng of people from every tribe and tongue and nation who will gather to worship Jesus forever and ever and ever. But instead of being fully focused on Jesus... They were allowing themselves to be distracted. They were allowing themselves to be drawn away from the Lord. And they were allowing themselves to to, to compromise their preaching and their demonstration of the gospel itself. Beloved, they were falling into an ancient trap. And this is why Jesus referred back to Balak and to Balaam. Now, as for Jesus himself, he had no fear of Balaam, of the Nicolaitans, of the powers of Pergamum, a Satan, or of those who were buying into their program. 
He knew full well that no one in heaven or on earth could thwart or destroy his purposes for his people, period and end of story. He knew full well that as it was in ancient days, he would cause the powers of this world to actually end up blessing his people rather than cursing his people. He knew full well as it was in the ancient of days that nothing would stop him from doing what he had planned to do from before the foundation of the world. But here, while the people of God were at the precipice of the promised land, if you will, Jesus decided to aim his fiery eyes into the hearts of his people and to search them and to call them out. Please notice that at least here in this context, he's not speaking directly to the powers of Pergamum. He's not speaking to the city. He's speaking to his people. He's aiming aiming his fiery eyes at those for whom he died and saying, come out from them, my people. Stop compromising. Let go of your idolatry. Let go of your adultery. Let go of your false worship. Let go of your fleshly indulgence. Come out of them that I, may, that I may heal you and send you back to them to preach the gospel that they so desperately need to hear. Now, <clears throat> this leads us to verse 16 where Jesus now calls the church to repentance because he's exposing the truth of their lives there in Pergamum for a reason. It's not for nothing. It's for something. He is a redemptive God. He's not just an accusing God. So here's what he says, verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and I will war against you with the sword of my mouth. As I said a couple of weeks ago, the word repent means to first change our minds and then to change our habits. It means to first be persuaded by the words and wisdom of God and then to submit ourselves to the will and ways of God by his power and for his glory. And so Jesus was calling upon his people to think through the lies into which they had bought. Jesus was calling his people to remember the words of the Lord about all sorts of things, and to believe the heart of the gospel and the, the manifold truths of the gospel and to buy into them again with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. Jesus was calling his people to think about the realities of false worship and the realities of true worship, and he was calling them to come out of the world. Jesus was calling his people to be renewed in their minds by the word of God, that they might be renewed in their habits by the power of God. Jesus was calling them out of the trap, beloved. You see, to some extent they were in a trap, but they weren't helpless inside that trap. Jesus was planning to give them power to come out of it, even as he's planning to give us power to come out of our traps right now. This word that he's speaking to Pergamum, he's also speaking to us. Some of us right now are caught in traps of idolatry and of immorality. And Jesus is saying, I will give you power to come out, but you must come out. I will be there with you. I will help you out. I will give you my spirit. I will give you brothers and sisters in Christ. I will give you all that you need, but you must listen to me and come out. Therefore, repent. Come out, my people. Come out. That's what Jesus is saying, beloved. He's calling them to change their mind and to change their habit by the, by the power of his hand and for the glory of his name. Now, if his people at that time refused to repent, If they refused to change their thinking and their habits according to his word and by his power, he solemnly warned them that he was going to come to them soon. I don't think this is referring to the second coming. I think he was talking to that particular church about a discipline that was about to come upon that church if they did not listen to him and repent. And I think we can receive this word unto ourselves as well. Because I think, again, the threat here is not 
is not to say that I'm going to come back ultimately in the second coming and it's all going to be exposed and it's just going to be too late for you to do anything about it. I think what Jesus is saying is that if you will not hear my words and repent, I am going to come close to you. I'm going to visit you. I'm going to pierce into you with my fiery eyes and I'm going to pronounce discipline upon you. I'm not going to tolerate this forever because I love you. And I want you to come out of the world. I want you to walk in holiness. I want you to have power and passion to preach the gospel in this world. So behold, I will come to you soon and I will war against them, those who are propagating this false teaching, with the sword of my mouth. Now to the powers of Pergamum who did not know the Lord, the day would come when by the sword of his mouth Jesus would pronounce judgment upon them. And that judgment would bring the wrath of God into their lives, a wrath from which they would not be able to escape. But as for the believers in the church of Pergamum who were in Christ but who were compromised, what Jesus is saying is, I will come with the sword of my mouth, which will be for them a word of discipline. He's not talking about the removal of salvation, but he is talking about the severe discipline of the Lord. The discipline of the Lord is always redemptive. The discipline of the Lord is always meant to draw us back. But beloved, the, the, the time does come when the patience of the Lord gives way to this kind of discipline. And the church of Pergamum was pressing Jesus toward that kind of day. It is a sort of last resort for the Lord because he wants his people to obey him from the heart. He wants us to want him. He wants us to want his will. He wants us to want his ways. He wants us to imitate the way of life that he lived on this earth, to seek the Lord and to listen to the Lord and to willingly, gladly follow in his ways, even if it means death on a cross. This is the kind of heart that he's trying to fashion inside of us. But if we will not listen, he loves us so much that he will come to us and discipline us. He will come with his penetrating power. He will come with his sharp two-edged sword. And beloved, none of us will be able to escape. And so I say to you again, that we will be wise if we will hear and heed this warning to an ancient church because it is the warning to our church as well. It is the warning to all the churches of Jesus Christ throughout the world and over time. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Come out of the trap. Listen to your Savior and repent. Now because this word applies to all the churches and not just to one particular church, Jesus closes out his letter with these familiar words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, present tense, to the churches, plural. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So, beloved, let us hear. This word is for us. It was not just for them. It was for us, and it is for us. So, beloved, let us hear. Let us search our hearts and consider our ways. Inasmuch as we're responding to our internal and external opponents with faith-filled perseverance, then I pray that we will be encouraged. Because Jesus Christ was aiming to encourage that church, and he's aiming to encourage us as well. All the news is not bad news here for them or for us. There are senses in which every one of us, and some of us in particular, are truly living with faith-filled perseverance. Be encouraged. Be empowered. Keep going in that way. This is the message of the Lord through the Spirit to his church. And as you receive his encouragement, resolve to love him with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, no matter the cost or consequence. 
Who knows what's going to come of our culture and what's going to happen to the church in the coming days. Who knows? But one thing I know is that standing for Jesus in his power and for his glory, preaching the gospel to the lost is worth any price we have to pay. So deepen your resolve to press on in faith-filled perseverance no matter what. Deepen your resolve to love your brothers and sisters in Christ and to demonstrate the love of Christ to them in practical ways. Deepen your resolve to preach the gospel to unbelievers out of love for them and out of a desire, out of a hope, out of a, um, a passion for their salvation. And as much as we search our hearts and realize that we're responding to our internal and external opponents by compromising our faith and falling into their ancient traps, and as much as we find ourselves engaging in modern forms of idolatry and modern forms of immorality and fleshly indulgence, then let us hear what the Spirit says to the churches and heed the gracious and solemn warning of Jesus to repent. Let us understand that if we do not repent, he will come and visit us with his purifying but fierce discipline. He will do that. As I said, the Lord's discipline is always redemptive, but beloved, I'm sure like me, you have undergone the discipline of the Lord before, and it's not necessarily pleasant. It says in Hebrews chapter 12 that nobody likes discipline while it's happening, but since it's producing the results that God wants it to produce, since it's actually producing in us godly character and godly actions, we can rejoice in it, but it is no fun. The Lord himself does not want us to have to undergo this, so please hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and repent. Come out of the ancient trap. The Lord has given you the power to do exactly that. Let us take advantage of this strange time that has been given to us really as a gift from the Lord to search our hearts and to search our habits and to come more fully into conformity with the Lord by his power and for love of his name. To the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes their flesh, who overcomes the world, who overcomes Satan himself by faith in Jesus and not just by their own resolve, to the one who overcomes by clinging to the name of Christ and being faithful to his faith, to the gospel, by the power of his strong hand, by the presence of his Holy Spirit, to the one who conquers in that particular way, Jesus makes two promises that might be a little confusing to us, but at the end of the day are just stunning um, mementos to his lavish grace in our lives. First of all, he says that he will allow those who conquer to eat some of the hidden manna. Now that probably is a reference to the manna that Moses and Aaron gathered and stored in the Ark of the Covenant, which itself was then stored in the presence of the Lord. When God freed his people from the strong hand of Egypt by his own stronger hand, he then led his people into the desert, and his design was to bring them almost immediately into the promised land, but first he had something to teach them. So inside of that desert, he caused them to hunger. And please, you can go back and read the story for yourself in Exodus 15 and 16. You'll see it there. God caused them to hunger because he was trying to teach them a lesson. He was trying to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every single word that comes out of the mouth of God. God was trying to teach them something about the power of his word and the place of his word in their daily lives and in his purposes in their lives. He wanted them to understand but instead of trusting him, instead of being humble before him, 
instead of learning from him and, and drawing from him for endurance in this season, the people began to grumble against the Lord and against his appointed leaders. But in his grace, instead of punishing them for their faithless grumbling, he simply provided them with this stuff called manna. It was sort of like crackers, a kind of bread that would just appear on the ground every morning as the dew landed upon the grass. And every morning, except for the Sabbath day, the, the Israelites would go out and gather the manna, and they would have plenty to eat for that day. And then the next day they would have to go out and gather it again, and they would have plenty to eat for that day. And so it continued for 40 years as God provided for his people. But think about what that manna really symbolized. It symbolized three things. The first thing that that manna symbolized was the faithless rebellion of the people of God because it would never have even come into existence if they had just trusted the Lord and followed in his ways and learned the things that he was trying to teach them. The second thing that it symbolized was the lavish grace of God that was poured upon his people because instead of disciplining them for their rebellion, he blessed them with the food for which they were grumbling. Third thing, it symbolized the word of God, the sword of the spirit that was coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. Because that's the whole reason he had them in the desert in the first place. He was trying to teach them about the power and the place of his word. So there it is. Manna is a symbol of fleshly rebellion, of lavish grace, and of the word of God. As the people of Israel were coming near to going into the promised land, God commanded Moses and Aaron to go into the field to gather some of that manna, to put it in a jar, and put that jar inside the Ark of the Covenant, which would in turn be put inside the very presence of God. It was hidden manna in the presence of God. And I'm sure that to some extent, that's exactly what Jesus is referring to there. I'm not saying that the literal manna that Moses and Aaron gathered that day is now literally preserved in the presence of God, but I'm saying something of that symbol has, is now because it has always been preserved there in his presence. God has always remembered this whole situation, and he has always remembered this sacred symbol, and somehow he has kept it preserved in his presence. And so when Jesus says, that for the one who conquers, I'm going to allow you to actually eat some of that hidden manna. Here's what he's saying. If you will savor my words to you right now in this age, then I will allow you to savor the symbol of my word in the age to come. I will allow you to savor the symbol of your rebellion, but the symbol of the lavish grace of God toward your rebellion and the symbol of his word that brought you fully into his purposes, promises, and plans. I am going to allow you to indulge in that. And guess what? As we overcome and get to eat of that manna, what we're going to get to discover anew with great depth of insight is that Jesus Christ, as he taught us in John 6, is himself the manna. He is himself the bread of life because he is himself the word of God. The symbol that we will savor will essentially be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Embrace his word in this age, you will get to savor his word in the age to come. Feast on Jesus Christ in this age, you will get to feast on him forever in the age to come. So is the lavish grace of God toward his people, beloved. Let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To this, Jesus also adds that he will give the one who conquers a, a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
In the Old Testament, stones were often used as a symbol of, of remembrance. It was a way of remembering some grace that God had given to his people or something that God had done in the midst of his people. And given the fact that the people of God at this time were indulging in sexual immorality, in impurity, the fact that this stone is white probably signifies the purity that is gained by faith in Jesus Christ. It's a white stone. In the Greek and Roman cultures, to add to that, white stones were used in a number of ways, but there are two particular ways that I think are very, um, um, uh, that have a lot to do with what's happening here in this particular text. On the one hand, white stones were used in the Greek culture to signify uh, acquittal in a court of law. So if you were hauled into court and your case was heard and you were found to be not guilty or you were found uh, to be completely innocent, a white stone would be cast on your behalf. The white stone signified your acquittal. And the other way that white stones were used in that time is that they were given to the victors of various athletic competitions. And that stone allowed them access into a banquet that celebrated their various victories. So just think about that. In the Greek culture, the white stone meant acquittal and it meant access into a celebratory banquet. So I think that as the people of God, we can put all that together and say that this white stone is given to those who conquer as a remembrance, a stone of remembrance of the grace of God that acquitted us from all of our sins and allowed us entrance into the eternal feast of God with the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's what the white stone is about. On that stone, Jesus says a new name will be written, and we shouldn't be so surprised about that because very often Jesus granted new names to people when there were great changes in their lives. I think of, of Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. And on the day when we see Jesus face to face, John teaches us in 1 John chapter 3 that we are going to be radically transformed into his image because we are going to see him as he is, and along with radical purification along with radical transformation, will come a new name that signifies all of that. In our culture, names don't mean a whole lot to us. But in many cultures around the world, and certainly in biblical cultures, names actually um, characterize the person, the being of that person. So again, with a, a new transformation, with a new age, comes a new name. That should not surprise us. It's a little surprising that Jesus says that that name will only be known to the one who receives it. But the more I thought about that this week, the more I came to think that, that it's just a, a, a another um, a demonstration of the lavish love of God toward his people. He has a name for you that only you and him need to know. It's not a matter that it's secretive. It's just a matter that God keeps it between the two of you because he loves you like that. He has things that he calls you that he doesn't want other people to know that he calls you. It's, uh, it's a demonstration of his personal love for you. It's his demonstration of his, his personal love for me. There are things that I call Kim in private that would not be inappropriate for her to be called in public. There's nothing wrong with names that I use for her, but it's not for you all to hear. It's not for you all to know. It's a name that's for her, and she has, like, Likewise, she has things like that for me. These are demonstrations of a, of a private love. And you see, when somebody is truly satisfied, deeply satisfied in the love of God, it's okay for that to be known to some extent, but it doesn't have to be known by others because we're satisfied in God. That's my best guess at why this name is hidden. 
But whatever the truth is in the sight of God, I, I may well be off on that, but whatever the truth is in the sight of God, here's what I know for sure. The granting of the manna, the granting of the white stone, and the granting of this new name, all of those are just evidences of the lavish grace of God upon his people. All of these are evidences of the lavish grace of God of to a people that he called out of traps into which they willingly fell. And so I want to encourage you once more as we bring this message to a close to hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. I want to encourage you once more to search your heart and to consider your habits, to let the Lord expose the realities that he sees there, to let the Lord call you into repentance, to let the Lord empower you to actually repent, and then to let the Lord lavish his grace upon you in response to the repentance that he himself empowered. Let the Lord do his work, beloved. The Lord wrote this letter first to Pergamum, but he wrote this letter to us too. He had us in mind, so let's receive it. And let me pray now that God will help us with that. Our God and Father, the setting for this sermon is far from ideal, but we give you thanks for it. We give you thanks that in our culture we have a technology that will allow us to deliver a word into the lives of people. And I pray that now that it has been delivered that it would have great power. Lord, it's not my words that have power. It is your sharp two-edged sword that has power. And so I pray that you would wield that sword and exercise your power among your people right now. Father, for those who are living in faith-filled perseverance, I pray that you would greatly encourage and empower them. For those who have compromised and are giving in to idolatry and indulgence, Lord, I pray that you would rebuke them. I pray that you would call them into repentance. I pray that you give them all the power that they need to come out from the world. Free them, Father, from the ancient trap, I pray. And Lord Jesus, for how you will help us, for how you will empower us to be free, for how you will empower us to love one another and to preach the gospel in the world, I give you my thanks and praise in the glorious and gracious name of Jesus. Amen. Now, beloved, that the message is over, I want to encourage you again to sing a song together. I want to encourage you to pray with one another. I want to encourage you to talk about the things that you have heard in this message and the things that you have heard in the singing you've already done. I want to encourage you to demonstrate the love of Christ to each other and to someone else outside of your family. And I want to encourage you to have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches through all of these things. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance over you and give you peace and hope and fresh faith to persevere, fresh faith to come out of the ancient traps. May he give you the joy that belongs to those who conquer both now and forevermore. I bless you in the name of Jesus Christ. I bless you for the glory of his name, for the joy of your souls, and for the blessing of the nations. God be with you all. I so long to be with you physically again in worship, but for now, God be with you all.